I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, my name's Herschel from London, and you're listening to Dame Baptiste Questions Everything. My question is, you've both expressed that you dislike your voices in the past. If you could have someone's voice, whose would it be and why? Okay, here comes the show. And remember, question everything. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dane Baptiste Questions Everything, a podcast where myself, comedian, writer, and occasional actor Dane Baptiste, and my producer friend, Howard Cohen, a.k.a. The Hizzer, Hello. Post the questions that need to be asked, and we are talking everything from... We are talking everything from Herschel from London's question. Whose voice would you want if you didn't have your own? Dane, whose voice would you go for? Good question because my voice is so weird. Let's be honest. Like, first of all, it didn't break until I was like 17. Right. And by break, we we really mean fracture because if I'm surprised, I can go right back up to those Tevin Campbell octaves. A very comedic voice, but if I was to choose a voice other than my own, I think it'd be like Marshall Ali. Nice. Like his voice in like um, Moonlight, yeah. Mm. Oh, that was a great voice. I'd go for um, I'd go for David Attenborough because um, I think you can just get away with anything if you've got David Attenborough's voice, right? I mean, people just love him, don't they? So it's always very trusted. I think I could I could do anything with my life if I was just like sounding like David Attenborough. But, but we won't be able to test this out, sadly. But anyway, we ask all the questions, don't we, Dane? That's the point. I'm surprised you didn't say Paul Merton, though. But yeah. <laughs> well, there's no Paul point. Merton. There's no point yeah, in exactly. saying Paul Merton, is no there? Point. There's no point. Already sharing a voice, Howard. Already sharing a voice. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, we're talking all the questions, guys. And if you enjoy listening to the answers to questions or have questions of your own, then please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify. You'll never miss an episode. And also subscribe to us on Acast, which is the world's largest podcast network. So we'd love to hear from you. With that being said, today's show has our esteemed guest, who is a Black British actress, director, public speaker, born in Nigeria and raised in London. She's the founder of the Kalashnikov Fitness Studio in Peckham. She's the host of Say Your Mind podcast in 2018. She won Fitness Queen of the Year, Two Screen Nation awards in 2019 for best podcast and best social media personality she loves all the smoke she's the queen of smoke she's a smoke goddess and we are very 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 happy to finally have her on the podcast please join me in welcoming the incredible Kalechi Okafor how are you doing goddess Empress what is happening what's happening I'm excited thank you for having me Dane and Howard like that's the best intro ever I'm keeping it the queen of smoke keeping it <laughs> queen of smoke smoke, smoke goddess <laughs> you have been you've been highly sought after by our listener base to have you on the show so it's a real joy to bring that to the to the audience and, and wow. for us you know well I'm glad to be here thank you what voice uh, are you happy with your voice uh, going back to Herschel's question um, I've gotten better at liking my voice over the years. Before, I used to just hate like hearing it back. But if I didn't have my voice, then I would definitely have um, Viola Davis. I'd have Viola Davis's voice. Nice. voice. I just like the. Dr- I just like it's deep and it's got that drawl to it, and it just sounds confident. Like she could just be saying the wildest thing, but it just sounds really confident. So I'd want her voice. Viola mm. Davis has got that voice where if she tells you something in a monologue, which is about building up your self-esteem. 
you have no choice but to walk out the door. I think it's like an involuntary thing. Even if in your mind you were still like, I can't do it, Viola, your feet would be like, we're about to climb this mountain. It's, we have no experience with mountain climbing. <laughs> Did you not hear what Viola said? We're going to do this. <laughs> Viola said you can. So we're, so we're doing it. She said, no, she's had a few monologues like Viola Davis uh, in Fences. Oh, my goodness. That was a film. That was a film. Like these monologues could be like 10 minutes long and I'm just sitting there transfixed. Like her voice, her delivery is amazing. Yeah, she, uh, she, and actually it's something you you both have, which is quite similar. I know it's about yourself. And because I very much struggle with denunciation, Kelechi, as I'm sure you all learn. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I see it yourself. And also I noticed it when I was working with uh, Don Warrington on my sitcom that people are able to like speak from the diaphragm. So you don't have to necessarily change your position in order to project. Whereas when I was learning how to speak for acting, they were like, Dane, stop mumbling, please. Here's a, and they used to give me like a cork so I could pronounce words better before I said my lines and all this other stuff because they said I mumble. And I'm like, it's not I mumble, just that I had the voice of a 14 year old girl until I was 17. <laughs> and then it really break that much. And then... <laughs> Obviously, when sorry, I was sorry to laugh, I, sorry to laugh, really. Oh, guys, that's what we're here for. That's what we're here for. But like, the problem is, so obviously, because it was so high pitched. I mean, it was great for boys' choir, not so great for any other interaction involving boys and girls. So I used to speak a lot quiet, and I developed a mumble because I had a complex about it. But it's tra- training, right? It's, it's a lot of it's kind of. I, I I definitely trained myself to speak a little bit better than I did when I was a kid growing up in Ilford. I don't know. Yeah, I think like that's what it is for me. Um, all the time that I spent doing theatre, like theatre is my main love. I think film and TV is great when I finally get like big roles, but theatre is my main love and you have to know how to project when it comes to theatre. But I remember when I was playing Henry Higgins in My Fair Lady in high school and I really couldn't get my diaphragm to do what my teacher wanted it to do. So she'd have me like lying down on the floor, like bending over a piano, really weird positions, very wild positions, but it got the job done. So now I feel like I can speak a little more clearly. Mm. Sometimes it comes across as a bit loud, but yeah. That's click, click, clear and and assertive. Yeah. Uh, I think sometimes people, because some people consider it as being loud, but it's like, you know, it's like when someone like Brian Blessed speaks, it's not, it's not obnoxious. He's just that like, he's just loud and assertive and he just knows what he's talking about. Mm. But yeah, enunciation is important though. It is important because when I listen to gigs, what's that song, Talking the Hardest? Yeah. I did not know that some of the lyrics were what they actually were. I was saying <laughs> my own thing for ages. <laughs> and people were like, collectively, those aren't the lyrics. What are you saying? Gigs would never say that. You're so, like, well, yeah. here's the lyrics I learned. So now's the remix. <laughs> That's the remix, I'm afraid. <laughs> you wanna, you wanna, if you want to see voices being compared, I remember I was working with uh, Romeo from So Solid. Right. And uh, we were going over a script. So I was trying to explain to him how the script kind of works. You want to see how bad my voice is, how bad it sounds next to someone's voice. Like Romeo was like, I want to say, first of all, thank you very much for the opportunity. And I was like, yeah, Romeo, basically, yeah. That's what I want to do. I'm about to be involved in it. So, no it's going to work out. And he was like, bro, there's no need for you to panic. I can send some neuroses in your tongue. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> and I'll be able to understand. Nah, I know you will, bruv. I know you will. Because you're, you're dope, bruv. So what I'm trying to say is... Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh wow. That's so bad. But we're learning every day. And like I said, I'm, I have been told uh, through, through what I was supposed to be, I guess, positive feedback that I have a very comedic voice. Um, <laughs> so I guess it, it are we supposed to laugh for this? I don't know, Kletch. Are we okay yeah, to laugh? Exactly. I think it's we my, are. No, it's, my, it's my best, it's my, it's my, it's my main instrument anyway. So the yeah. more I can kind of 
use it to uh, you know create imagery and, and subvert it. It's all good, man. Exactly. It's use the you we were born with, isn't it? It's probably time for a question, isn't it, Dane? As as, as the as the format dictates. Yes, I think at this point in time, our listeners are sick of hearing Dane's shrill voice. Um, so that cacophony can stop. Uh, Kalechi, thanks again for being on the show. Uh, the way our show works is that as our esteemed guest, we invite you to ask the first question, any question you would like, which we will all discuss for 15 minutes and then how will ask a question. Mm. And we will again do the same. And then I'll ask the final question. We'll have the rinse, repeat. Then we all go home, have a good time and continue the struggle for equality on a global scale for all of our people and the people of the sun. Sound like a plan? Sounds like a plan. Perfect. And then, uh, Miss Okafor, you are invited to ask the first question. Right. So my first question as um, a podcast, two men, um, what do you suggest? What would be your number one tip for somebody to do right now, a man to do right now in order to kind of un- start unlearning sexist ideology? Like one thing they can just do right in this moment. It's not one of those things where they have to go and think about it. What a good question. That is a brilliant question. It, would, it, would it be the first question that stumps us for a second, Dane? <laughs> <laughs> Shit! Well, you know, Shit. I don't know. I don't believe it's a trick question, but it's a leading question mm-hmm. because the first thing you have to do is to be silent and take the question on board. Because uh, I guess imagine when you are given the task of doing some introspection, a lot of people naturally, their inclination is to be defensive and be like, oh no, I always do that. Don't worry about me. But um, yeah, I think the, f- the first thing I guess I can do is observe some stillness and take in that question. Anytime when you are having to address, an, especially a regressive ideology, it's about introspection yourself. So I think anybody who is uh, with this question of dealing with, again, as I said, a regressive ideology that damages another group of people. And in this case, we're talking about, you know, the most populous people on earth, which are women. Yeah, privilege, I think the first thing you do is to address your own fears because I feel like most discrimination, even if it is uh, subconscious uh, or it's a learned behavior, stems from fear. A few friends, a few comics, a few colleagues of I were having a discussion and we're talking about, you know, the rightness of uh, sexual abuse and uh, manipulation and trauma that women suffer with in comedy. And I think my friend had written something and I think he, he used the term female and someone had quoted a tweet and been like, like, ugh, female. And I feel like he was taken aback because the um, intention of his tweet and stuff and his statement was to be positive and to be supportive. And obviously the nomenclature wasn't necessarily that useful. So someone had been like, ugh. So I think sometimes in, there's, this, there's the inclination of you to be like, but I'm trying to help. What's wrong with you ladies? But be prepared to be to take many, many pratfalls, especially because... You know, we're, we're trying to redraft society in that, so you're going to trip up a, sh- a shitload of times, I think. Because people instantly become very defensive, don't they, Kalechi? It's one of yeah. the most noticeable mm-hmm. things about men uh, in regard to kind of uh, sec- their sexist beliefs. They will instantly become so defensive that they haven't done anything mm-hmm. wrong, right? Yeah, I'm a good guy. I'm a good guy <laughs> is the first thing I think that comes up, and, and that's interesting to me how... Mm-hmm. Um, it, like individuals will take themselves out of it and say, but no, I'm a good guy. And I just wonder to myself, so that means you know what it is to be a bad guy. So exactly. let's talk about the bad guy and, and how there are so many bad guys. How do you feel about that? You know, because yeah. otherwise you get, you get caught up in this whole, okay, you're a good guy, but you know, and then it, it starts being about that as opposed to, we still need to talk about the issue, which is 
all of these things are happening. And that female thing is so interesting because it happened for ages. Um, A lot of men I followed would get really, really upset when uh, people would pull them up and say, female what? Female cat? Female dog? What are you, female what are you talking about? Mm. Because also it's not necessarily, when we're looking at women, we're not necessarily always looking at people who were born as women in Mm. that sense. So Mm. you've got to consider that, you know, they weren't, is, there's so many things we're not just talking about cis gendered women so it's very very important to start breaking away from things like female but i guess those things aren't really explained on social media so everyone gets upset mm. absolutely i mean obviously social media the thing is social media has allowed for the democratization of women's voices to a very large extent but but within that the uh, i believe the uh, the breadth of narrative that you can have within social media is very very limited is, I mean, you, because you're talking about a discussion about a framework in which global society is based. So to try and begin to dismantle that in the space of, I don't know, like 260 characters is a very big ask. Uh, but yeah, like that being said, I agree with yourself is that, you know, there's always that initial defensiveness and this, uh, and it's a weird thing where people will use singularity and collectiveness when it suits. So it's like, mm-hmm. if you're making the observation about patriarchy and how damaging that is, and it's like, but I am the good guy. But it's not about you one, it's about a system from which you priv- or you benefit in the same way that like, but that same token, forming generalizations on women based on interaction with one of them, like a bad marriage, is, mm-hmm. is this, it's the same thing as you being like, well, that was one woman you had a bad experience with, or, you know, a social group, or, you know, it might even just be a social application. But yeah, it, it, I think, yeah, you raise a really good point in terms of like, we don't, the, even the rudimentary understanding of talking about gender, not in these binary terms, I find it quite strange sometimes where people are very... A lot of people that speak about traditional uh, gender roles will speak about uh, with it and intersect it with uh, discussions about religion. Yes, I was going to say, yeah. You know what I mean? So it's like, well, God said this and God said it, but I'm like, but why would somebody who has a reverence for an omnipotent being that's all-known and all-seeing and all-powerful reduce that concept by anthropomorphizing your gods and making them a man? Like, if you're talking about someone who's created the entire vastness of, you know, existence... Why would that person have a penis? <laughs> Wouldn't you think that would be, be a, a higher power would have transcended these very human, very superficial ideas of having a, like you really think genitalia? God, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> God's going to have genitals for what purpose? If you're talking about an immaculate conception and you're talking about someone that's taken from the quantum of oblivion to create the vastness of the entire universe that continues to expand as I currently speak, you really think that person's got a dick and balls between their legs? And on the seventh day, he wanked. And on the seventh day, he wanked. <laughs> right? Exactly. Exactly. Oh, I never read that bit. I never read that bit. Right? Oh, yes, she did, Howard. You know what rested means. Was that a director's cut? That was the director's yeah. cut, right? They Howard. looked at it and they were like, no, let's let's not say that he wanked. Just exactly. say he I rested. Mean, he rested. But, but you know, the thing that the thing that comes to my mind with that question, because, I, you know, I, I, I would be lying if I said I didn't feel... Uh, a little bit of defensiveness in trying to work out what to say, which isn't always the case on this podcast. Usually it's instinctual and actually listening to Dane talk and and kind of mulling it over a bit. I I would say that the the one thing I could instantly do uh, from now until the day I die is call out other men for when I believe they are behaving uh, inappropriately and unacceptably towards women. And, And that is something that actually the strength in numbers thing if one person starts doing it, more people start doing it, can, I think, be beneficial. You know, I remember growing up and um, I was always, 
a big revelation. But I was always not that keen to just try and uh, get laid. Uh, <laughs> I probably couldn't. Have, <laughs> I, I probably couldn't have done it anyway. To be honest with you, I probably wouldn't. Have, I probably wouldn't have been very successful anyway. But the, but the the thing was, it, 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 now the baby's next door. How I know. Okay. You know <laughs> I, I completed the game. I won. Yes. Um, no, but um, no. But the, 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 at that time, I remember lads. You know, growing up with lads, everyone trying to get their leg over. Do you know what I mean? Like everyone, that attitude yeah. was was so prevalent. And I just didn't believe in it. And I thought, I didn't think it was very uh, pleasant, (laughs) if I'm honest with you. But it was so widespread. I was never going to say to people, I think you should actually find someone that you uh, might want to settle down into a long-term relationship with. And uh, and Kelechi, I don't know if you, you know, you think that is a part of what, you know, kind of men not communicating with other men about what they're doing wrong is, 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 is potentially part of the problem. Definitely, I think like cisgendered men not communicating with each other is a problem. But I think that the, the communication happens in different ways. But then when we look at, for instance, um, rates of, um, you know, men who take their own life and things like that, it's because there, I guess there isn't enough communication and there isn't enough conversation even about mental health to begin with. But I think that before men can call out other men, they have to know really what they're calling out because part of the problem is we've been socialised into believing that that this is normal. It's normal to treat people this way. Like it's normal to treat women this way. So uh, for instance, how would you knew that this was unpleasant? You instinctively knew, but if someone's grown up in an environment where they are taught like to second guess themselves and not to go with what their instinct says, but what to go with what their dad says or what their uncle says or what, you know, their friends say, then they will take that to be, well, that's how we're meant to behave. So even if deep down they don't want to, they're still going to go ahead with something because they believe that they are wrong. They have to follow the collective. Um, And some people just genuinely don't even think that there's anything wrong with it. They just go with it. Like what's, you you say to some men, um, women don't appreciate walking down the street and you say, smile, and they're like, oh no, but I was just being nice. What's wrong with Uh, just being nice? That happened to me. That's such a good point. So there's a friend of mine, and name not being revealed because not not to expose him anything like, but he's he's a great guy. And this was the concept I was trying to explain to him because, um, I guess for me, and this is the, the 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 benefit I've had over a lot of men is that I was raised by a lot of women. So mm-hmm. my mother has six sisters, and my mother's sisters on average have two daughters each. And my dad is there as well, but my dad as well, he grew up with his mother and his sister in the UK when he came over to the UK. Grew up in, so. I guess that's benefited me in two ways. It means that I've always been exposed to dialogue and experienced that kind of phenomenon from the perspective of women first. And second of all, mm-hmm. um, it means like in terms of like when we discuss issues like feminism and stuff like now, where a lot of men have been taught that I say they've, they've been taught to conflate um, feminism with either like female chauvinism or misandry. Like this idea mm-hmm. that women are trying to usurp the position of power and basically just change the poles of power where the leverage of power where men are now un- an underclass and women dominate them, which is not what feminism is. And mm-hmm. so for me, I just saw a visual representation of that whereby there's, there's, there was not even a fanfare to it because everyone I saw achieving when I was growing up was naturally a woman. So my mother went to uni- open university, got herself a degree. All the first people that went to had a further education in my family were women. All the people I saw who learned how to drive and be employed and achieve as I was growing up from my adolescence were all women. So they were always my reference point for achievement socially. But uh, so back to what you said before. So my friend of mine, like I said, it's there's no malice, but sometimes there's these misguided instances of chivalry whereby you've been taught this to learn the behavior. So I was just explaining to a lot of guys, you don't even know that woman's journey between a subway station and where she's going or even another subway station. 
what mm-hmm. you have to understand is that every time a woman is greeted with that kind of honorific, yeah, now she's got to play this Russian roulette, whereas I don't want to be rude, but if I say hello back, he will interpret that as a signal to pursue. If I don't say hello, they'll say that I'm rude, then they become belligerent. If I just say, leave me alone, then now it becomes hostile, and now my my safety is at risk. Just, and these are the... Just the under game. threat, just so They're unnecessarily under threat. Under threat. Women have to run through their head all the time, mm. just over something as small as that. And I said, and he was like, but I'm just trying to be like, I'm like, I get that, but you don't know that that is a stranger. You, you have no idea. Like when you have been getting sexualized before you even have a concept of understanding of your own sexuality from 14, 15, and you're a young woman and you start hips widening and have breasts. And now men are making commentaries on that. Mm. As you walk, you make your way to school. Like, you know, I, the only way I could explain this is like, when you're, if you're a black person, it's like when you walk into a shop, it's all these things you have to consider. Am I going to be followed now? If I pick this up, yeah. thing, do I need to show the money to know that I've got money? Or if I show money, it's like I'm not a drug dealer. And it's all of these kind of issues of insecurity that come from external suggestion hmm. that, you know, you have to consider all the time. So yeah, that, 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 that's a really good example. And I agree with Howard in that it's, um, because I find a lot of the time for more, I guess, men who want to appear more liberal, they will show to solidarity to women and declare themselves to be feminists on stage and give the justification mm. for which. And like I agree with Howard is that is there is no need for me to, well, I might be slightly be condescending, convince you as a woman that you're my equal. Why do you need to, why yeah. do I need to convince you of that? That's not, that's just patronizing if nothing else. It's like, it's more when we see these flippant instances of sexism, that yes. we address those amongst our, you know, our own, I guess, more, more, more likely to be cisgender men. And actually, yeah. and it, so actually in some cases, even with uh, homosexual men who may, who sometimes feel they have the privilege to make, uh, you know, sexually aggressive remarks about women and be like, but because I'm not attracted to them, I'm allowed to do it. Even in those yeah. instances, you have to be like, you know, whether or not you're sexually Yeah, that's not acceptable as well. But I think, I say this to people all the time, Kleshi, yeah. It begins all the way from the beginning of our society in that by the definition of species right just by you know even by the darwinian definition of species uh, a species is an organism which can mate with another organism and produce viable offspring which just more is just less complicatedly put i'm basically saying two animals can have babies and those babies can continue to have babies mm. and i say that because a lot of time like if say if a lion and a tiger produce offspring you can get like a tiger or a liger depending on who the mother is but a lot of time that animal will be sterile. The same mm-hmm. with like with a horse and a donkey making a mule. Obviously they can reproduce, but a lot of time the animal will be sterile. So this is how we define what a species is. I say that to say this, yeah. For you to identify a species, it means that species has to contain the organs and the mechanism to reproduce more offspring, which mm-hmm. means at the end of the primate evolutionary chain, where we start off as like primates and we go to like Homo erectus and we arrive at Homo sapien. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That has to be a woman because for us to continue as a mammalian species, the only person that can reproduce for us is women. Mm. But we have a society whereby you go to any museum, any science classroom, evolution shows a quasi-European man with a spear mm-hmm. at the end of that chain. But by the definition of species, scientifically, the first homo sapien would have had to have been an African woman because it's the only way that we would have been able to continue as a species. Because right. maybe we, we could have had that man but that man would have had to mate with a Neanderthal or another Homo sapien in order to produce more human beings. Mm-hmm. But that can carry human beings are women. Human beings, yeah, yeah, yeah. Are, are human beings who are women. So it means from from the inception of our even our understanding of ourselves as a species, women would have come first. But that's scientifically. But then if you look at most of 
our religious doctrine, which is Abrahamic, it is has its basis technically on the subjugation of women. Because, yeah. you know, Christianity really, or any Abrahamic religion, if you can't have sex before marriage, what that's saying is, is that your womb must be monitored and sanctioned by us before you use it. But that's a full circle thing, exactly, because we have to we have to give you um, the instructions and the go ahead to be able to use your own womb. And that is the problem with smile, because smile is an instruction. It's an instruction. Fam, you don't know me from anywhere. And you've just instructed me to do something you on the basis. Right. Because I'm presenting as a woman. I, I present as a woman. So you feel like you have the authority to tell me to do something that makes it's not for me to feel good. You don't know what I'm going through. Like you said. You don't know what I'm going through, but you just want the world to look nicer. And because I'm presenting as a woman, I must look as women look, which is to just be, you know, pleasant and smiley but, but and not even that. It's just orgasmic. You're, you're being, you're being <laughs> involuntarily lured into a, uh, a courtship ritual that you may not want. Yes. Because yes. If, you're, if I smile at you and then you and I do catch your eye and you like, I want to reciprocate, you might smile back or you might have a, a you know, a, a prolonged stare. But if mm-hmm. I'm trying to force you to reciprocate the same signal I'm sending, do you know what I mean? That's not the same thing. Mm. I'm, if, if, I, if, if I look at you and I smile, you might find me attractive, but th- that might not be the day today. Yeah. Because yeah. that's just naturally how courtship works. My, my plumage may not suit you at the time. If I'm on the road and I might look a certain way, that might, that might not suit you at a certain time. Whereas if I'm in a different environment and you're in a more relaxed and more safe and comfortable environment, the situation may change. So a lot of men, like, so going back to what Howard was saying, it's like, Oh, because he doesn't want to go around having sex with every woman he can. Well, you're not a man, bro. You don't like girls, bro. What's wrong with you? That's the response mm. you're going to get. Mm. And, you know, a lot of men have this complex whereby they have been taught so much that their manhood and their manhood's worth is a numbers game, which is based on, you know, how many women they can attract or how many women they can bed. Then it loses all meaning for them. And it's almost as if, like, you see men will approach and it's like, you couldn't want to approach somebody you actually have a serious, you know, plan of being with, with that approach. Like, if you're pulling up to a woman across the street in a car, like, you really want to tell people at your wedding speech, so anyway, pull up in the Ford Fiesta. And <laughs> so, I know what I just said to me. She must have stepped out of the McDonald's. I said, babes, babes! And next thing I know, she's jumping the back rack, and then that's why you're all here today. So if you could raise your glasses, like, no speech goes that way. Uh, not that I've been to. Uh... Think about it this way, Kalechi, yeah? When a, if, as a woman, when you're, like, having targeted marketing towards you on the internet... So many things will be targeted to you about like, they usually go for hair and weight and beauty. And you know, women are always attacked from all sides. With men, when they go on the internet, it's how big is your dick? Do you want a bigger dick? Yeah. That's all, that's what we're taught. That is, that is the antenna for your manhood. That's just how you broadcast the virtue of your manhood to the rest of the world. Like no questions about how you're gonna get in to meet a lady in like a bar or a restaurant or in a social situation to even get to the point whereby she can see your big phallus. It's just. Get a big dick. <laughs> when the dick's big, the problem is solved. She'll see it. Yeah, yeah she'll see that dick in the shorts well, and she'll jump over that back crack. When was the last back. time a guy got a bit of spam email that said, are you looking to fall in love? Then you yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So many layers to that question, Kaleci. I don't know if you have a particular thought that, of, of, you know, what you think men should do to unlearn kind of sexist ideologies. It's such a, it is so many layers, right? 
Yeah, so many layers, so many layers. But um, I, I guess where um, Jane had kind of sprung off with it, I think is the best thing, it's stillness. Stillness, because within stillness, you discover so much about um, yourself and we all discover so much about ourselves and we know where our fears are. And within stillness, we're more receptive to uh, learning new things and unlearning other things. There's that openness for, okay, let me know what I don't know. Mm. A lot of times when you let people know that oh this might the way that you think the world works is slightly different for this group of people the defensiveness comes in and so there's a closing off there's mm. no stillness there's noise there's noise like ah oh, I'm a man I was raised this way yeah. God told me this and now yeah. you define God and my and family now saying everything totally. is wrong yeah and so when you then go the other way and say, no, actually, I'm going to listen and I'm going to sit with this discomfort and I'm going to be still. Then you're more likely to be able to be signposted to other things that could aid your learning and things like that. Because if the first thing is to go, I want to ask questions. No, again, it's a power dynamic of I'm going to control how this goes, where there are no questions to be asked, really. It's more about sitting because anything you probably want to ask, women have probably been saying it around you for ages. Absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah, uh, again, more specifically put to the men listening, for those of you who ask, how should I, how do you talk to women? How about just listening? Amen. Amen. What a question. One of the great Great questions we've had on this podcast in recent times and one that we could devote the whole episode to, if I'm honest, but, um, but the format dictates uh, other questions, doesn't it, Dane? So we'll, um, we'll have to move on. We'll be back. We'll be going live soon once once we get out of lockdown. So yeah, yeah. great question. Yeah. we move. My question. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It is a different uh, question <laughs> to, to mm-hmm. the issues of kind of uh, sexist ideologies. But it, it's one that I've been mulling over uh, and it's personal. I've kind, of, I've kind of brought this up with Dane in the past. Uh, I... Obviously, uh, anyone who knows me, hello, listeners, uh, if you don't know what I look like, uh, I, I look a bit like Frodo, who, who's aged, <laughs> I've aged, I'm badly aged Frodo Baggins. Um, but but I'm, I'm, I'm a white man, right? That's, that's, that's still very much the, the who I am. And um, 
I, uh, as would be obvious to anyone listening to the show, um, have a massive desire to support uh, black issues, part of what I do with Dane on this show and what we do on the, the, the social media. It matters to me. I'm not always completely sure why, but it does. You know, not that I always need to dig into it. But I am a Jew. I am a Jew. I am not. <laughs> I think maybe that's partly why I am uh, permitted to talk about it in a slightly different way. So my question to you guys is this, is what role can the Jewish population play in the global understanding of the Black Lives Matter movement? Because the Jewish population has a particular role to play in uh, the global, global, global scheme of things. Uh, I, this is so interesting uh, to me as a question because I think that there is a responsibility for all of us and we, throughout the years and throughout the decades and centuries, we've been taught particular things about each other as communities and you just take it as rote, like, yeah, they're this way and, you know, these people are this way. I think that there's a major unlearning that needs to be done and a re-education that needs to be done on an interpersonal basis where we actually understand in each other's complex histories because what I find happens is that when we want to talk about things like Black Lives Matter, um, you'll get people who aren't Jewish, who aren't black, coming in and going, oh, but the Jews suffered. The Jews suffered. What you know, don't don't talk now. The Jews suffered. And then it's almost trying to force you into a corner of then comparing, you know, the atrocities that both communities have been through and comparing histories. And that is a derailment tactic. And that is a deflection from the greater issue, which is white supremacist ideology. And that is where we should all be directing our energy towards, like dismantling that, because it doesn't serve any of us. And at some point in history, we've all been battered up by this very same ideology. So really, it's not about looking at, oh, well, you know, um, we're all the same because we've known that the, the, the struggles and the atrocities are horrendous and they bear different strains of something that we need to really, really interrogate further so that we can better support each other rather than trying to I think that sometimes as humans, what we want to do is go, well, we're all the same. We're all the same. Well, we yeah, can it, be different. It's almost yeah. like it's a um, finite resource, right? There's a hundred percent of pain, suffering and oppression that the yes. human race can use. And, and so once someone says that we have some, the other people who may have experienced it say, well, hang on, don't take away from our percentage of this uh, thing. It, yes. And obviously it isn't a percentage. There is <laughs> horrible sentiment. There is more than enough to go around. <laughs> that's a terrible the sentence. The struggle is abundant. Yeah. Well, I mean, and that's what's kind of incredible, isn't it? Because obviously, you know, and, and, and my reason for bringing this up is really, is, is really just because I... I I talk to people in the Jewish community who kind of try and get their heads around their what they should be feeling about Black Lives Matter because um, it, I, I think it does create complications in some people's minds. Yes, yes, and and I don't, I, I don't, I'm not surprised by it. I'm not surprised by it, and I just think that. For me, I have to go and do a lot of reading to understand where the myth is from actual people's, you know, lived experiences and histories. And I think that we all need to do the same thing. But I do see how it plays out on social media and how it plays out even in just mainstream media when, um, you know, the Labour Party were having, you know, when during elections and everything, and we're very much talking about anti-Semitic tropes and we're talking about how this isn't right and this isn't okay. Now we are told that there's been a 
quite a lot of misogynoir taking place in the Labour Party and then it's almost silence. And it's like, no, we need to have the same energy. If we're going to have the energy for one thing, we have to have the same energy for other things. And I think that this is it. Nobody is um, free while anybody else is unfree. So no matter what it looks like, we all have to come together at some point. Absolutely. Mm. And yeah, just to, just to uh, further on that point, because uh, I agree with Kalesh as well, is that it's, uh, yeah, it's always a derailment tactic to try and have people comparing um, traumas rather than all uniting to address the uh, phenomenon of trauma and division, because that's really the issue anyway, because myself personally, I'm even partially, I even partially get quite confused at the uh, need to kind of compare, uh, I guess, what's a racial issue with a, uh, a theological one, because Judaism mm -hmm. is a faith. And, you know, mm -hmm. there has to be intersectionality because Mithrazi Jews are predominantly from Ethiopia. Yes. So politically speaking, would be considered black themselves and therefore any any oppression which has its root in oppressing black people would affect them as well. Um, so, yeah, in that respect, how would how could they be separate from the cause? Or if you look at like I guess more prolific black Jewish uh, people like Sammy Davis Jr. or uh, Lenny Kravitz, Drake. or you know, yeah. So I mean, there's a it's it's kind of strange sometimes that there's even a polarization when it comes to addressing issues of oppression. So. Yeah, but I, it's interesting that you give that comparison, though, again, because usually th this is what I mean when we talk about white supremacist ideology, because we don't consider the intersections of Judaism in and of itself as well, because when um, it's talked about in mainstream media, it's like this is happening and lots of white faces are put forward rather than letting people know that, no, every, this is what I, um, I mean by nobody's free while anybody else is for unfree, because all of our struggles, all of our traumas are interconnected and that matters. Absolutely, yeah. There's, it, it's, uh, you know, I mean, even if you look at some of the instances of, of you know, the sharp rise in hate crimes uh, that we've seen in the West of more recent times, um, you know, you had Anders Breivik, who basically committed the worst massacre that's been seen in Western Europe since World War II. And a large amount of his victims in Norway were um, of the Jewish faith. As you know, you've seen, like, you know, attacks on synagogues and, like, yeah, revelations of anti-Semitism within the Labour Party, which obviously turns out to be insane. But then at the same time, you know, mm -hmm. I know the same with the misogynoir as well. So I think, yeah, um, the, the quickest and uh, the shortest answer to the question would be, as Kalesh said, it would be that, uh, you know, Jews, uh, like uh, members of the diaspora, need to realise that the uh, key here is not comparison of tragedy and trying to play top trumps of who's experienced more throughout human history. It's recognising that, you know, we have to be galvanised against the enemy, which is, uh, you know, is imperialism, colonialism slash, you know, white supremacy and, you know, the various... Uh, incarnations in which that manifests, whether that is within racism or anti-Semitism and, you know, a number of other kind of regressive ideologies that kind of affect both parties. Yeah. Well, I suppose the one thing that makes it kind of complicated is this is the skin element, which is, is bizarre. Right. And, 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 and the idea that the Jews would feel, I mean, I, I don't know, because because because, you know, the majority of Jews that you or me will, will know uh, are considered part of the white population. But I can yeah. I can speak on behalf of many Jews and say, we are not. Uh, we, oh, have wait, not no. we have not been accepted I, I, uh, Paul, in that. Paul says white people know who are white. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and also, and black people know who aren't white too. So, uh, yeah, I, I think there's, you know, um, particularly among uh, black communities is that we are aware of the nuances and of, uh, yes. and, you know, and, and, you know, even some of these kind of micro nuances and, you know, concepts like passing and stuff. So we are, um, yeah, we've all, because of this, it's, it's become a very, learned skill of a lot of black people that um 
black people, we know who's black and we know who's really, really white. So a lot of the time, what you tend to find is that when people try to, I guess, rationalize their existence within a racial hierarchy or an oppressive hierarchy, they'll be like, yeah, but I'm white. We're not the time we're like, you're not really. And take it from us. If they, if they can do it to us, they'll do it to you too. And history should kind of teach that. So you do tend to find a lot of the time people try to identify with that whiteness or I guess they try to rationalize it by identifying with, you know, nationalism and be like, yeah, but I was born in Britain and blah, blah. And I guess, to be honest with you, there's almost a point of comedy from black people right. where, you know, somebody comes on and it's like, you know, Elias Constabulos and he's like, well, I was born in this country and I'm white. And we're like, you're not no. Elias. You're really dumb. <laughs> In the name of Aphrodite, you are not. <laughs> yeah, as so I think, yeah, it's, it's that recognition of the fact that, you know, the concept uh, and, and, you know, institutional racism and this whole concept of racial stratification isn't as binary as saying black people on this side and white people on this side. It's- no, because you permeate, you permeate over time and there is this, this is what happens, like the, in, in order, I, I guess we go back to all the science and biology here, but in order for you to have that kind of homeostasis, you have to be able to let um, certain people move through into certain privileges in and out in order for you to keep the power that white supremacy wants. So yes, you know, or we'll let these group of people into whiteness for a bit so they can enjoy the membership club and that way they will keep these people oppressed. So we're very aware, even if we don't have the vocabulary for it as a community, I think we are, like the diaspora is very aware of this interchange that happens every time, you know, racism wants to adapt. Mm. Absolutely, yeah, because for example, you know, I, I hesitate to remind people all the time, before 2001, the national dish of this country was curry. <laughs> <laughs> then two planes hit the Twin Towers, all of a sudden, Islamophobia mm. is a term that never existed before. Now, all of a sudden, mm. people can't trust people in burqas, which is strange for me because I went to university in Bradford and you see a whole <laughs> car full of people in burqas and nobody cared then. Uh, or if you saw, a, you saw, you know, 12 hijabi girls walking down the road to go to a cafe after they've been to university, no one better than Ireland. So, you know, uh, not that my message alone is foreboding, but yeah, as Kalechi said, people should be aware that we are, we've had enough experience in racism to see when it revamps and attempts to rebrand. And as I said, a lot of time it will try to create these demagogues who will turn around and say to the most depressed. Well, I came here with nothing and my family worked hard and blah, 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 blah. Why can't you do the same? And it's like, yeah, you're saying that now, but like, you know, a few years ago, you, they were talking about you like they talk about us. Mm-hmm. So, well, it's like know, it, um, it's like the uh, the bad guy in the Terminator films, right? The T one thousand, you know, it keeps keeps regenerating in this new way yes. racism. Yeah. And, and, and the thing that I kind of part of the reason I, you know, because like I say, you hear things, you read things online from a Jewish perspective. Personally, I read things about Black Lives Matter. And, I don't know. I, I thought, uh, as as someone who has a platform, it, 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 it as much as it's slightly more personal than I normally do on this, I just couldn't not say something. Which is, you know, to me, if anyone in the Jewish community isn't understanding what Black Lives Matter is about, go and talk to people and try and understand it. Because if you if you if you if you feel that defensiveness, going back to what we were talking about with sexist ideology, if you're feeling defensiveness, mm-hmm. hearing what's going on in the states, in the UK, you need to remember our history. And remember how these things happen, how these things grow and develop, and respect for other cultures and the problems they will be facing. You know, it seemed that defensiveness that I saw online over the last few weeks just made me go, "Come on, guys!" Like, like Kletchi's saying, "Who's the bad guy yeah. here?" You know? I think it's quite, I was finding quite because I was I, I spoke about this this week was the fact that you know you had the Nuremberg, Nuremberg trials, where it was like you know years after the World War, if you were involved in you know 
the orchestration of the Holocaust. You're found, doesn't matter how many years have gone by, you're found, you're prosecuted, you're jailed. If you're if you're even lucky enough to receive that kind of uh, punitive sentence. But it's like, if you look at like American culture, they've had a normalization of the brutalization and killing of black people for years. Mm. So you've got to think about it in this way, like as recently as maybe the 60s or 70s, people have been able to kill black people with complete impunity and mm-hmm. then return to their families and live and thrive within their own families because as far as they're concerned, culturally, they've not done anything wrong. Now, mm-hmm. that means that you now have this transgenerational trend of naturalized murders, murderers being in people's families mm-hmm. who themselves have killed. Maybe they've, their lives have led to someone else being killed because they falsely accused somebody or something. And this has been normalized within their families and these people continue to reproduce. Like, how can these people be okay? Because like you said, if it's revealed that somebody is a sympathizer with or denying the Holocaust, sympathizing with Nazis, associated with Nazis, even today, your career is done yeah. and your investment will be lost. Unless you're Mel Gibson. Unless you're Mel Gibson. And, uh, <laughs> the only one. In that respect. Whoa. No, because, you know, but that's because, you know, Christians kill and they got money too, Howard. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, listen, I, I, I thought it was important to bring that up. I, I, think it's, I, think it's very, I think it's very important. It's a really good question. I think, you know, it's the best. Yeah. Ever. It's almost a similar answer is that you have to listen and empathise and really surrender all of the other labels after, other than your humanity. And hmm. mm. this uh, discourse, I think, is the answer. It's a, yes. it's a great statement. And um, and thanks for, thanks for answering, guys. Dane, it's over to you for the last question of the show. Um, um, it's in it's in within a, a similar, similar vein, uh, Kaleshi. Uh, basically, try and keep it as quickly as possible. For me, it's like, uh, obviously, the last week's few weeks have been massively politically and socially volatile um, as we've seen demonstrations around the world and that are dealing with the issue we're discussing when you see the resurgence of this ideology like times up and me too and you know pride is this month as well so mm-hmm. there's a lot of what i guess would be referred to as some of the more uh, contemporary progressive ideologies that are being represented in uh, media right now mm-hmm. what the commonality is between all of these things is that they were all started by black women mm-hmm. pride uh, even uh, trans rights, uh, issue of black lives. Obviously, I'm aware of misogyny and sexism, uh, and I'm also aware of racism, but I probably don't have to experience the combination of those simultaneously in the same way that you would as a black woman. Mm. Which is why terms like misogynoir had, were coined and need to exist. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I, so basically, I just wanted to ask, like, with uh, everything that's happening at the moment, do you think that's something that's being addressed both you know, intraracially amongst other black people, as well as on a global scale. Like, almost, how's it going, black girl? What's, that, what's happening? How's it going? Is what I want to know. Just trying to, it's, it's going, it's going, it's going. And I think that that's the thing. We don't realise just how many uh, movements um, black women, queer black women have put themselves at the forefront of. And pretty much any black um, feminist that you want to quote, you know, or, you know, any feminist quote that you think is like, oh, this is amazing. It was a queer black woman that probably put that quote forward. Like people who have been the, like, the most ostracized, um, least protected, keep coming up time and time again to be in the front lines, if we're going to use that terminology, although I find it rather problematic. But they keep being at the forefront of this um, kind of battle that we face when we are looking at white supremacist um, patriarchy. 
And it's tiring. It's tiring that uh, black women, the labor falls on them all of the time. Most of the time, I would even say um, specifically, it falls on queer black women. It falls on, you know, people, black people within the LGBTQ plus community to be the ones fighting for the rights that then cisgendered people, cisgendered black people benefit from. And then they turn around and go, yeah, but I don't agree with your lifestyle. Uh, and that, I think, is the kick in the teeth, like to know that for so many of us, we benefit from the work that queer black women do, that the, the queer black people do. And we can then turn around after we've gotten all of these benefits and go, yeah, but, you know, I just don't agree with your lifestyle. I don't even know what that means, like how you can keep taking from someone Listen, and talk about madness. a lifestyle. Madness. I'm in comedy, in it, And like for most black people, because of the marginalization we receive in this country, like, for a lot of us, you know, the pinnacle is to be successful in the US, isn't it? And mm. a lot of people have done it, but I haven't seen a comedian really do it like Ginny Asher, eh? But, mm. you know, when we discuss who runs things as far as our scene, she don't really come up and she was doing, like, that's the first black British person I saw do Def Jam, Netflix special, own sitcom in the States. And, you know, so I, it, that's, that's a great example of somebody who, you know, runs yeah. things we don't really give it up to her the way we should. And why don't they? I wonder why don't they? And I and I think it's something to do about the way that she presents and that she's yep. a dark-skinned black woman. And those things aren't just seen as palatable to audiences, especially black audiences. So if we're talking about um, conversations happening within the community, we don't want to address colorism. We don't want to address the ways that um, we prefer for lighter-skinned women to be the ones that we put forward because of desirability politics and things like that, and far beyond desirability yeah, politics you know, as well. You know, the new app where you can turn it, you know, basically changes your gender. Mm-hmm. Like I was saying about it, because I, I, I tweeted about the two things. Number one, I was saying, well, if you guys are using this app, very clearly you're not that, you're not that adverse to um, gender reassignment because everyone's using right. it. Number one. Right. But number two, when somebody used it on me for the sake of the human stuff as well, my skin as a woman became much, much lighter. And I'm like, so there's already this conflation of fairer skin with femininity. Yes, yes, because so, it moves you a closer proximity to yeah. white femininity, which is what we deem as the most feminine. White feminine purity is what people have historically gone to war over to protect it, even though it's a construct that doesn't exist. And white women really need to understand that it's not benefiting them either to be confined in this way. But they really you've been reduced to like if if well, women have reduced the status of livestock and. You know, white supremacy has made white women like the tuna of the sea because this, yes. that archetype of the blonde haired, blue eyed, big boobs with the size zero waist has been purported to the entire world. They're the trophy. They're the, that, that's what needs trophy, to be obtained. Yeah. It's no and longer a person. It's, that, it's, yeah. a, it's a thing to obtain. So then if we go to that and we say that womanhood was constructed for the sole purpose, because we know that actually womanhood, or, you know, as we see it, didn't exist before colonialism, didn't exist before we had all of this stuff, right? So womanhood was constructed solely to give white women superiority within our society and to make them the thing that we all aspire to be or to attain, right? So then that means that black women therefore historically have always existed in the liminalities of uh, what we could uh, describe as womanhood. We've never actually been woman. And that's why it's so easy when someone wants to make a joke, even when black men want to run jokes about dark skinned black women, they'll compare you to a football player or they'll um, liken you to a man because really we all understand, even if we don't have the vocabulary, that black women have always been left out of femininity. They've always been left out of womanhood. And for that reason, they've had to operate from there like we're going to fight for everything but we've got to fight from it for it from this space of we're not even allowed to be women 
Yeah, you know it's an interesting because it's an interesting point because I was watching a, a, a snippet from uh, Stickman from Dead Press, mm-hmm. and he was saying, you know, this is one of the reasons why black men have had to make such an emphasis on love and sexuality in like music and R and B and stuff. Because when you're a black man and you're trying to endear yourself to a black woman, and like I said, it's more—it's not enough to just say smile because you are dealing with somebody who's had the suggestion from all external sources that they're, they're barely feminine, much mm-hmm. less beautiful. So mm-hmm. it's about having to bring somebody whose self-esteem is taking a battery from all sources from down here just to even acknowledge her womanhood and that, you know, even within this paradigm of these very chauvinistic ideas of I'll be the man that takes care of you as a lovely woman, Yes. You should have to even allow a black woman, give her the trust that you even respect her femininity and her womanhood beforehand, before anything else. So your mm-hmm. game, so yeah, your game has to be a lot stronger when you approach a black woman because before anything else, she's already being told that she's not good enough as a woman before she even opens up conversation, which is why like with R&B and so and stuff, that's to be such a massive emphasis on loving a woman and how many different ways and these myriad of ways of how you can make a that woman to realize her beauty and her sexuality because these women are being told by society that they're not good enough. So yes. you know, is it very, so you know that's that's why like when black people are articulating love in art and culture, we have to do so uh, with such embellishment and, and and the way it even manifests as well. Just going from what you're saying is that whenever you watch or listen to like you know black people musing on pop culture, contemporary debates, like web series, every single question when I see from other black comedians, all of their preoccupations about relationships. Yes, and that should tell us as black people we are. Why is it whenever we're talking, we're having heated debates? All of our topics always revolve around relationships and validation from a potential partner. You know, mm. the pursuit of love. And you know, the great question is, what is happening to us that we are seeking love all the time from everywhere else? Mm. But then that's the thing because it's been denied. It's been denied so fiercely, and we've been taught for through centuries that. Um, because how do you not inter- internalize that type of trauma? How do you not internalize that type Listen, of trauma when generations? Like, yeah, if you can look at where white women live, and like you know this idea that that is the pinnacle of femininity. But then if you look at the rates of cosmetic surgery in those same regions. Mm. Um, even for white women, it's not working, you know? It's not working for anybody. None of this is working for anybody. It's not working for white men. It's not working for white women. It's not working for anyone. If we're just looking at those kind of um, false dichotomies and we're talking white, black, and when we have to consider, you know, um, East Asian, South Asians, and and, and all indigenous people, we've got to consider all of these people. But if we're talking about just in this dichotomy and say white, black, it's not working for anybody. And even the white people that's most meant to benefit, white supremacy is meant to benefit, it's not benefiting them because they're locked into this whole dynamic and this whole farce as well that serves nobody really and then we're trying to play it out and I think that that's what the pandemic has done so well in terms of kind of blowing it up for everybody else to see, magnifying it so we can see just how little we are served by the governance that we allegedly have put into place, like we voted for this to be here and even those people who might have voted um, with xenophobic motivations and um, bigoted motivations, they're now realising just how little they are cared for by this system and so suddenly that's why Black Lives Matter is such a big thing right now because suddenly people are like oh so is this a little bit of what it feels like to be black this is horrible when does it stop and then within a matter of weeks um, laws and legislations are being changed people are talking about how they're going to interact with the police because once you got draped up a couple of times you realise that oh police brutality is a thing you don't want that to happen but if we scale it all back where would Black Lives Matter be without black women? So that's, it's, it's a very weird thing to kind of look at it and, and think to yourself, 
if I understand how my humanity and how my existence links to everybody else's, even if they don't understand how their humanity and existence links, um, existence links to mine, I know. So for that reason, I have to fight until they wake up and they're ready to fight too. And I think that that's what's so exhausting yet beautiful about the black woman's experience, but it shouldn't all be about labor, free labor. There's been centuries of free labor. And I think that that's why my onus for me personally is on anger. I'm going to be the angry black woman, whether you like it or not, because anger serves a purpose in all of this as well. We have to identify the centuries of trauma. But if you want to focus right now on rest, then you rest. Um, because ultimately where we're all trying to get to is joy. Mm. And that's going to take a minute. That was what I was going to ask really was where, where is this, where, where is the end? Where is the, 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 the thing that you're kind of, that we need to happen? I, I don't think we should talk about it in terms of end myself personally. I think that, you know, our, our, our journey to improve and elevate as a species and society remains dynamic, even if we turn back, because yeah, uh, when you, you think about it in a kind of a poetic way, Kaleshi, it's like, you know, as I was saying, mm. a black woman would have to be the first human being, scientifically mm-hmm, speaking. Mm-hmm. And now that humanity sees the specter of fascism rising all over the earth, trust mm. the first human being to turn the tide back again. Yes. Because outside yes. of like, you know, it's a police brutality. We were seeing this resurgence of fascism in this country with, like you said, uh, xenophobic voting, uh, you know, mm. a lot of Western Europe, a lot of um, the Eastern Bloc, we're seeing these rises. Mm-hmm. And now on this, by you've seen this, Black Lives Matter, and then by holographic principle, now a lot of this progression kind of like fighting back against this fascism and against like, you know, corrupt governance. And again, it's like black women have lit the spark again for the fire of humanity to kind of be blazed again and be like, we're human beings, we shouldn't be cooped up, treated a certain way. And, you know, again, it's like, I don't think people remember like at the beginning of this year and towards the end of the last year, how much the right wing was um, gaining political sway in both, Mm. you know, social and political discourse. And now... Black Lives Matter has begun the conversation, the rebuttal again. And that has begun with black women. So, like, even if you don't want to smile, we're going to smile for you. I like that chocolate. <laughs> but then the thing is, Black Lives Matter, people um, can ride it, ride it, ride it, and ride for it when we're focusing on black men. That's also part of the issue, because when we're fighting for black men, this is great. But when we're talking about, for instance, justice for black women specifically, and we're looking at the instances even of, like, the wild um, tweets and things that have happened on social media over the years, we're looking at um, the abuse that black women have faced at the hands of various men of different races and ethnicities. When they're trying to call it out now, what's happening online is everyone's going, oh no, can't believe them. Do you really think that this is the right time to be talking about this? If we don't talk about it now, when would we talk about it? Listen, well, it should I mean, Breonna Taylor happened, her murder happened before George Floyd's and, yes. and you know, there's no difference. Maybe you saw the video of George's, but the injustice... I mean, arguably, me is even is, is is bad, if not worse. So, yes, either one of those should have been a catalyst for this whole thing. So, yeah, I totally agree with you. And I think, you know, for those who are distracted, who are like we we shouldn't be talking vocalizing our, our our separations now, blah blah. It's like no, people should understand. If you're going to attack a people, normally it begins with the womb of that people. So, yes, mm. if it's not being protected and nurtured and elevated, then there's of course this is going to become a cyclical thing. 
Well, and it's also yes. and, and, and it's the most vulnerable. They'll hit you where you're most vulnerable, and Absolutely. the most vulnerable aspect of um, the black community is the black woman. Um, the you woman, know, the black women, cisgendered or um, or um, or trans uh, women. They, you know, we don't even talk about how um, many trans women and trans people die per week. But we're talking about Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter. If we're talking about Black Lives Matter, we should consider all of the Black lives that matter. Because usually, they're the ones that have to put their sexuality aside, put their um, how they identify aside to. Go and fight for basically black men and then when it's time now for black men to fight for them it's like oh well i don't agree with your lifestyle that's what we need to kick out the window and just understand that um our uh, community and our strength in our community predates colonialism, which brought the idea of gender and brought all of this hickey hagar. We don't, we don't actually need any of it. So to decolonize our understanding of ourselves as a community is really where we'll find our strength. And it also means um, decolonizing what we believe to be spirituality as well. Mm. If we understand that we don't see this uh, most supreme being as male, then we yep. understand that okay, that means that we have to ride for everybody, not just the men. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 I think the one thing that you know, as as someone who who only has so much of a, a, a something to say on this subject from a personal perspective, the one thing that you you mm-hmm. can at least have some hope for potentially, I guess, is the uh, d- democratization of our media. There is mm-hmm. hope uh, through projects like this podcast your own podcast and even, you know, you know, even hashtags like black girls rock and black this is girl what i mean like, if we use it well if we use it well like small small incentives like that i think have i mean i don't know for sure but i think the fact that even the, that black and dark-skinned women in the diaspora just globally can have a mm-hmm. united and galvanized conversation with each other Dane, Dane, so there can't be problem. a there can't be a coincidence that these issues have have, have had such prominence in our in our conversations across all media uh, since social media is, has, has had the prevalence and, and podcasting as well, I would argue, has had such prevalence, you know? Yeah, you, you yeah know. something that I definitely talk about often, like because due to the popularity and the rise of social media, we've seen a globalisation in the idea of black sisterhood. It, we're, allowed, we're able to communicate in a way that we haven't been able to communicate Perfect. before, you know, from Tumblr to then Twitter. Mm. Black women have been able to mobilise and galvanise each other. And then that's why we're seeing such kind of strength and prominence in the movements that we have and then ultimately corporations want to um, um, co-opt what's being done but every time we kind of regenerate and create something else and to just keep moving so it just goes to show the the strength of sisterhood and uh, the the power of uh... and how does that make you feel amazing amazing i i love to know that even when my got deleted because I was calling out one nonsense woman every the community were able to kind of raise their voices and get my Instagram back that is the power of social media and that is the power of mobilization and the power of community strength in numbers we must have strength in numbers uh yes and um I hope that the, the the listeners have enjoyed today's episode because I think it's been a phenomenal listen I'm happy today man it's been it's a, it's a hot day Hot day, got my <laughs> sun is sun is sun is shining right right into the in, into the pineal gland, so it's a good day. Yeah. Um, but thank <laughs> you, Kalechi, for coming on the show. That, that thank last, you for having me. Yeah, amazing mix of questions. Mm-hmm. Um, I imagine uh, that my uh, guests have had a bunch of mindgasms and can't get enough of you, Kalechi. Can you please let guys, uh, guys and girls, and however people contextualize their gender and their existence, <laughs> uh, where they can find out more about more of your work and where they can listen to your podcast and where they can see you next. Okay, well, I'm my podcast is Say Your Mind, so you can type that in and find me on um, all the platforms. Say Your Mind, and I'm at Kolechnikov, 
K-E-L-E-C-H-N-E-K-O-F-F. I was struggling to spell it there. Kolechnikov. And I'm just, yeah, I'm about Instagram, Twitter. Twitter's my favourite place. I'm mm. about. Me too. Love seeing you on there. It's fun. <laughs> I feel like I feel like if Twitter was a high school, we're on the same we're on the same row in class. And I love it. Yes, yes. <laughs> always, <laughs> always, always getting each other going, riling each other up. Like you go, you go. Yeah. Who, who's looking at each other's answers? Or uh, we're sharing. We're sharing. It's great. It's great. <laughs> my, text, my, my textbook is it's Kalechi's textbook and vice versa. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um. So with that being said, Kalechi, um, normally we like uh, to leave on the message uh, so if you'd like to leave in a message to our guests and to our guests and uh, followers at large because I feel like that's the best way to do it because we want to encourage um, listening and empathy uh, for the original womb <laughs> so the message I'll leave everyone with is the fact that there is no kind of end to anything that we're doing we're all going to go back to source at some point no matter how we play this whole thing called life the fact is that we are going to end up going back to source and we should be able to take back to source something worthwhile we are all part of the collective body when we get back to that body we want to make sure that whatever we're contributing is something positive and it's a great reflection of the lives that we've lived so just remember that the next time that you want to move mad you've been listening to dane baptiste questions everything hosted by dane baptiste for more from dane go to danebaptiste.co.uk or follow him on twitter at danebaptweets or instagram at danesnaptiste our guest was Kalechi Okafor. You can follow Kalechi on Twitter and Instagram at Kalechnikov. The show is produced by me, Howard Cohen. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at the Howard Cohen. The show is mixed and mastered by Decode. You can follow D on Twitter and Instagram at official Decode. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at DBQE Podcast. Thanks to Polly, Gelly and the ACAST team for all their support. Thanks for listening, guys. And remember, question everything. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.